It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. Big news on Wednesday. Uh, The United Auto Workers Union, they endorsed President Biden. And look, uh, there was there was no doubt that that was going to happen. Uh, because, you know, given the fact that you've got Trump on one side and Biden on the other, for working people, it should be an absolute no-brainer. Uh, but Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, uh, gave an incredibly powerful speech. And I wanted to quick play a couple of clips because, well, I, th- I think it's really important to understand, you know, what what Fain's argument it is. Here, here's clip one. Working class people are hurting. For decades, we've been ignored at best and trampled on at worst. But we are the vast majority of society. We have the numbers and we have the votes. When we stand united, we put fear in the hearts of the billionaire class. And they do what they do best. They try to weaken us by dividing us. It's an old trick the billionaire class plays, and it's effective. Time and time again, the wealthy divide the masses as the rich walk away with all the money. Yep. And, and look, and this is something that we've talked about quite, quite often here on the program. This is not... This is not new. This is something that, you know, look, uh, they divide us, they slice us, they dice us, they pit, pit us against each other uh, so that, well, it's it's more for them, well, less for us. And this is one of those moments where you go, you know, Sean Fain's spot on. Uh, look, the billionaire class, they can divide us by um, male, female, you know, gay, straight, you know, black, white. It doesn't matter. They will find, they're masterful at it. They will find a way to pit us against each other. And, and look, they do it very, very well. Uh, but Sean Fain went on in, in this speech, and this is, this is the meat and potatoes of the difference between uh, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. And I got to tell you, this is, for every working person, this is the case. If you work for a living, this is the case for Joe Biden right here. Let's take a look at the candidates in their own words and their own actions. In 2008, I happened to have a first-class seat as a negotiator during the economic recession. And in 2008, as you well know, the auto industry faced a historic crisis. We were on the edge of total collapse. We, with entire communities, were being devastated. Hundreds of thousands of auto workers' families were left out in the street. It was our members and our retirees who sacrificed everything to save the auto industry. 
in that moment. Donald Trump said, and I quote, I think that the unions are really, really hurting very badly what's going on with the auto industry, end of quote. Joe Biden, having helped save the auto industry, said the nation bet on the American auto workers and won. In 2015, when he was first running for president, Trump went even further. He said the concessions we took weren't enough. He wanted to do a rotation in the auto industry of the jobs in Michigan and the Midwest so union auto workers would be begging for their jobs back at lower pay. He wanted to put the race to the bottom on steroids to screw the American working class. And he did just that. Uh, and, and look, here's the reality, and this is where, to be, to be quite honest, um, you know, he went on even further into this and talked about you know, what Biden had done to help you know, walking the picket line, you know, all of the things that he's done. But focus on Trump. Uh, the fact that Trump, his labor record, he's got a labor record to run on. And it's not good. And, you know, what's interesting to me, and I have these conversations with working people all the time, that they seem to, he's listening to us. He cares about our, our needs, our concerns. Uh, he was smart enough to have his thumb on the pulse. I give him credit for that. Understanding that manufacturing jobs had, had left this country in droves, that communities were broken and, and hurting. I give him credit for at least knowing, hey, you know, there's a problem. But the reality, the reality is, is this is a guy who he's in it for himself, not for working people, not for you, not for me put for himself. And I think Sean Fain did a, a great job on Wednesday of laying out the case for Joe Biden in November, especially to his members. Look, it's a no-brainer if you're an auto worker. Uh, and, and look, if you're a working person, it should be a no-brainer. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Gonna take a quick break. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1787. That was the day known as Shays Rebellion. The United States was a new nation, and the Constitution had not yet been written. The Revolutionary Army had won the war with Britain, but the young nation was mired in debt. During the aftermath of the war, more farmers moved into western Massachusetts. Many of them incurred high levels of debt in setting up their farms. Due to economic hard times, the farmers found it difficult to repay their debts. Local sheriffs began to seize farms and even jailed some farmers. 
anger amongst the farmers began to rise. They held meetings to discuss how to respond. Many saw the government's actions as an echo of the very type of tyranny they had stood up against during the Revolutionary War. They petitioned Boston for economic relief, but their requests fell on deaf ears. The farmers began to protest the courts, disrupting the proceedings. For six months, the farmers waged organized resistance. One of the men whose farm was threatened for repossession was Daniel Shays. Shays was a former captain in the Continental Army who had fought against the British. He organized a force of a thousand men. The men marched on the debtor's court in Springfield and the arsenal located there. The governor of Massachusetts called out armed troops in response. These troops were funded by wealthy merchants from the eastern part of the state. And so on this day, four of Shea's men were killed as the troops attempted to forcibly remove the rebels. By February, the rebellion had been crushed. The rebellion influenced the writing of the U.S. Constitution, as some drafters were convinced that a strong central government was needed to quell further uprisings by the working class. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, some interesting new numbers out on the Affordable Care Act. I mean, the dreaded Obamacare. Uh, a record 21.3 million people signed up for health insurance through the ACA marketplace. Uh, that's, I think, you know, like more than 9 million more than when Biden took office. And I, look, uh, you know, Trump did try and kill it. You know, they did try to push it in the back. So, um, you know, he had he had some room to grow, but this is kind of a big freaking deal. And maybe, maybe even Mary Lou Retton, maybe she'll sign up uh, for health insurance finally with with, you know, the pre-existing conditions that she thinks precludes her from getting insurance not involved. Uh, but anyway, here to share some thoughts on the big uh, the big results from New Hampshire uh, and the big victory for. Uh, for the president, I've asked Colin Seberger to come talk with us. Colin is the senior advisor for communications at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. He's also the host of their podcast, The Tent. Colin, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks so much, Rick. It's great to chat with you. So let, let's start with the ACA thing, because this is kind of a, you know, to steal a Bidenism, this is kind of a big freaking deal. You know, it is a really big deal. Uh, you know, we have actually heard for the better part of, I think, nine years or so, Donald Trump has said, like, we're going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, we're going to repeal it, and we're going to replace it with something uh, to make healthcare great, to make it beautiful. Uh, it's going to be the best. It's exceptional. Uh, unfortunately, we're still waiting to see what his replacement plan is for, for wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But they're actually is a candidate, there is a president who actually has been improving healthcare. Uh, and we got the latest sign of that today. Like you mentioned, we have a record number of people who are getting health insurance through uh, the Affordable Care Act. How are they doing that? They're doing that because they have more financial health than they had when Joe Biden took office. Uh, Joe Biden passed a law that actually is bringing health insurance premiums down by an average of $800 a year for the American people. And that's just that's just one, you know, one small way, but meaningful way that he is actually lowering the cost of healthcare. 
He's taken on Big Pharma to lower the cost of prescription drugs by empowering Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. He's capped the cost of insulin at $35 a month. Actually, you know, every single insulin manufacturer is now, a uh, major insulin manufacturer is now offering their products for $35 a month. That's because of the laws that Joe Biden and Democrats got passed. Yeah, but you don't hear about that on the corporate-controlled mainstream media. In fact, you don't hear any good news coming out about uh, the economy or how families are doing. All we get, all I get from people, Colin, every day, and I'm sure you see this as well. It's doom and gloom. Biden inflation. You know, we, the 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 cost of everything is up because you know evidently Biden's got a switch in the Oval Office that goes uh, double the prices. Well, you know, uh, the uh, for those that think that. Uh, they may want to give Biden credit for controlling inflation all over the globe because it's been a phenomenon that we've seen in country after country after country uh, after the pandemic. And of course, that's largely related to uh, to supply chains, uh, of course, you know, being gummed up throughout the pandemic. But, you know, I think the the real thing here on the economy is we've actually seen in recent weeks uh, consumer sentiment has surged. We are actually seeing that people are uh, feeling better about the economy today than they have in years. Why is that the case? Because the president has delivered on some of these policies to lower the cost of living. I was talking about health insurance, but he's also delivered on you know lowering uh, energy prices, utilities. Um, you know he's he's passed a number of different bills to provide um, you know more economic relief to families. Cutting costs is his number one domestic priority. He's taking on, you know, corporate price gouging for things like, um, you know, overdraft fees that banks levy customers, uh, you know, when they don't have enough money and they go to the ATF, right? Um, a number of different areas. Taking on the airlines for, you know, all the ridiculous fees that they try to charge you, uh, you know, for selecting, uh, you know, seats as a family and wanting to sit together. So, you know, there's a number of ways that the president is really taken this on, but it's also building on a record that's incredibly impressive. We have the lowest inflation of any uh, major economy in the world. We have more job creation uh, than we've seen in decades. We're actually doing, uh, we have had, you know, low, uh, below 4% unemployment in this country for a longer stretch of time than we have had in about 50 years. And all of that is because you know, President Biden and Vice President Harris, their focus is on growing America's middle class. And it's not necessarily about, uh, you know, do I look out for you only if you're a CEO or if you have a MAGA hat on? Uh, you know, they're really focused on making sure that everybody, yeah. no matter your, the community you come from, is able to get ahead. No, and they're going to have to make that that case and and take that uh, on the campaign trail because it, it's not it's not getting out uh, to, to, to most of the people that I know. Uh, but I want to talk about the uh, the New Hampshire primary really quick because there was some interesting stuff that came out of this. You know, Trump didn't didn't you know it wasn't a knockout blow. He won, yeah. But some of the exit polling numbers uh, were quite interesting to me, and and you know the fact that you know Trump supporters are still buying the big lie that you know Biden didn't win and the election was stolen, and but those numbers are coming down, and also the fact that you know Nikki Haley got a. You know, what, 45%, 46%, whatever it was. Um, but those weren't really Nikki Haley voters. Those were Republicans voting against Trump, which I think is I think is really important to point out. And, and of course, a lot of independents and even some Democrats 
understanding the threat that Donald Trump poses to our country's future, trying to prevent uh, you know him from eking out a victory in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has this unique primary system where it's open. Democrats and independents can legally participate in a Republican primary and vice versa. Republicans can participate in a Democratic primary. But you're you are exactly right that, um, you know, I think that Republicans are waking up to the fact that uh, while Donald Trump may be their nominee, they're staring down the fact that MAGA extremism is the party's political death knell. It was in 2018. It was in 2020. It was in the 2022 midterms. Uh, and and so you know, I suspect that uh, you know there there is some uh, agita internally about that. You know, Nikki Haley talked about this in her remarks after uh, the election was called last night. Um, but you know, I also think though that part of the reason why you're still seeing such strong support for Donald Trump is because leaders in the Republican Party have refused to take him on. You know, this primary process was a joke. Yeah. Donald Trump didn't participate in basically a, a single primary debate. He's not answered the hard questions. He's not had to answer for, you know, his lawlessness, his corruption, um, you know, what he would do for the country. Uh, and all the while, you know, Republican leaders who were outraged at uh you know, his role in fomenting the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are turning a blind eye to, you know, his potential return to power, uh, are, are refusing to, uh, you know, call him out for the threat that he poses to the country. It's ridiculous. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's why he continues to, um, you know, have such strong support in the party is because, you know, his fellow colleagues aren't willing to take him on. Yeah, and, and look, you, you're watching the the march to kisses behind you know, going on as we speak. You know, I say all the time, Democrats fall in love, uh, Republicans fall in line. And we're watching that. And, you know, for me, the, you know, look, I, I get DeSantis, you know, uh, doing the Ted Cruz thing, you know, going and kissing the ring. I, I get that. I get, you know, most of the party. Um, I'm waiting to see if, if Mike Pence... Uh, you know, does the uh, the endorsement at some point. And I'm told from a lot of a lot of friends, it's going to happen just a matter of when. And that that will that will be the that will seal it for me that they just completely fall in the line because there's nobody going to take him on. You know, I mean, I, I that would not surprise me. It would also not surprise me uh, or sorry. I, I think all you have to do is look at, um, you know, people like Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, people who worked in the Bush White House, right? We're all part of the Republican establishment, quote unquote, back in the day, uh, you know, who now are out there, uh, you know, defending Donald Trump uh, for uh, confusing Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. She's now out there, you know, talking about January 6th uh, rioters being hostages. It, it's absolutely, you know, buffoonish kind of behavior um and it's i think something that the american people could really see through i sure hope so i gotta tell you because you know this this campaign this uh this election season uh this is about the future of the country and, and i look at what biden's yeah. been doing and and i've been i've been hammering on this a lot uh what he has done in the last you know two two and a half years is transformational i mean there's a major sea change in my view 
uh, where we have moved away from a lot of the neoliberal policies that got us into the mess that we're in, the, the bad free trade deals, uh, you know, the, the corporate begging. Are you starting to break up some, some stuff going after some of these big conglomerates, uh, reshoring manufacturing, investing in infrastructure, you know, supporting labor unions, uh, all of the what I call the secret sauce that built my grandparents' generation, uh, that built yep. the most prosperous working class in history, uh, in the history of civilization. That, to me, is where we need to be be looking. And I think Biden is moving us in that direction. I think he has to make that sale, though. He's got to explain to people where we're going, what the vision is as we're going down this road. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think he also, he has to paint a contrast for people, right? You mentioned uh, you know, having workers back, uh, having their backs. You know, it was Donald Trump uh, as president who ignored the pleas of striking auto workers at General Motors in 2019 when when you know they were demanding better wages and working conditions they didn't have a partner in the oval office in contrast Joe Biden was the first president in American history to join workers on a picket line he had their backs when they were standing up for uh you know being treated with dignity um and in so doing you know we actually saw uh, the United Auto Workers this week uh, actually uh, endorsed President Biden, uh, and and they did so following you know the historic wage increases that they they have been able to earn. But I think you're right. I mean, this is part of a a broader story. It's a it's a question of you know whose back do you have? Do you have the back of uh, you know America's middle class, or again, you know, do you have the back of uh, the wealthy CEOs? Uh, people who only you know politically agree with you that is really just a completely um different vision than the one uh that that president biden is uh you know is yeah. really using to to chart the path forward forward for the country no i i think he's got to get out there and make that sale that there's a vision play on that hope and change I'll say, look, we're 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 coming together. We're we're going to reunite this country. And I say that the fastest way we can reunite this country is to union reunionize the workforce so people can get better wages, hours, conditions. Because people are a lot happier when they can pay their bills. They can put food on the table. They can get clothes on their kids' back, and they're not worried about are they going to go broke and if they're going to lose their job tomorrow. So for yep. me, a lot of it comes back to the economy. A lot of it comes back to uh, the kitchen table. And look, reproductive rights are are huge in this. Uh, but I think you brought up Sean Fain. I think he he laid out the contrast for working people in the in the most perfect way possible. Uh, you had you know Obama and Biden who uh, helped save the auto industry, the auto workers, major sacrifices to save the industry, and sure. Trump said it wasn't enough. Would have gotten more, wanted more pain and suffering. In fact, wanted to pit, you know, the North against the South and rotate the jobs out so auto workers would be begging to get their, those jobs back at half the pay. I think that contrast right there. What more as a working person do you need to see? You know, I think you're totally right. You're you made a good point. Uh, you know, when America's auto workers were staring into the abyss uh you know around the great recession it was donald trump who put the blame on unions he put the blame on unions and tried to say that american workers uh you know were too well taken care of and they needed to take it on the chin in order to save the american auto industry of course these auto workers did sacrifice of course 
we should be very clear about that. Yeah. But but he did nothing to support them. Nothing. Nothing. He kicked dirt in their face when they were down on their luck. Uh, and then when he got into the White House, you know, uh, like I mentioned, these these auto workers in, at GM who went on strike trying to get a better wage after, you know, watching their company come back from the Great Recession and and earn these massive profit profits. What did he do? He he didn't involve himself whatsoever. He didn't have their backs. He wasn't out there saying that GM should be doing right by their workers. They should be investing in them. He did nothing of the sort. No, what so, he said is the, the union's leadership was selling the workers down the road, held a, a counter rally at a at a uh, manufacturing place, a non-union place, uh, yeah. where they had auto workers signs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, where the, 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 but no auto workers. And no but... auto workers. <laughs> and that, that's the weird part of this. It's, it's all the dog and pony show, and I hope working people see their way through it. Um, but last question I've got for you, you know, in, in looking at this, um, are, are we concerned? I mean, I got to tell you, I'm concerned that you know, Trump has a better than 50 percent chance of, of 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 winning in November. Uh, I know he's not creating any new new voters. In fact, he's losing people. If you look at some of the exit polling, some of the things people said in New Hampshire and in Iowa, um, I, I'm, I'm concerned that the energy is not on the Democratic side. Uh, do you share that concern? You know, I think that we don't really need polls to tell us that this is going to be an exceptionally close election. Uh, we we saw that play out in uh, 2020. But, you know, I think ultimately, at the end of the day, this is about, you know, the kind of country that, uh, you know, the American people want to live in. Do they want to live in a country where their rights and freedoms are on the chopping block? Or do they want to live in a country where they're protected? Do they want to live in a country where um, you know, we invest in growing the middle class or do we want to live in a country where the uber rich and, uh, you know, political allies uh, get all the benefits while everybody else takes it on the chin? Do we want to live in a, a country where crime is on the decline? Or do we want to live in a country where, you know, guns flood our streets and crime skyrockets? And, uh, you know, that really is the question uh, before the American people. Um, and I think that we're going to have, you know, this is going to be the longest general election, basically, because both nominees have kind of crystallized so early in this process. This is going to be the longest general election, and people are going to have a very clear sense of what that yeah. uh, what that choice is. And we should be clear, you know, a lot of the electorate doesn't even actually really, uh, it's not really set in with them yet that both Biden and Trump are going to be their party's nominees. So, um, you know, there's a lot of time between now and November. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think that we've actually seen the president's numbers kind of strengthen over the course of the last uh, month or two. I think also as these economic numbers kind of continue to improve, um, uh, the consumer sentiment numbers, that is, yeah. um, you know, I think that we, uh, uh, you know, are uh, well positioned to uh, see, you know, the president remain uh, very competitive, uh, you know, going into November. No, I got to tell you, I think I think he's moving us in the right direction. Uh, he's just got to get out there and sell what that what that vision is, I think. But Colin, I appreciate you taking some time sharing your thoughts, your expertise. Good stuff. Thanks, Rick. 
Colin Seberger. He's a senior advisor for communications there at the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, he's also the host of The Tent. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find The Tent Podcast. Uh, that's the Cap Action Funds podcast. And take a quick break. Right back. Stick around. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So on January 18th, Homeland Security officers searched a Chinese auto parts plant in Moraine, Ohio, Harco Manufacturing Group. Uh, evidently, they've been accused of trade fraud by a congressional committee. And according to the Dayton Daily News, Harco is a subsidiary of Sunsong, a Chinese part, parts manufacturer. Uh, but back in September, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party wrote a letter to DHS Secretary uh, Mayorkas accusing of Quindao Sunsong of moving some of his production to Thailand so that they could, well, evade the tariffs. Uh, and what the letter is calling for, it's called Sunsung's actions, uh, a case of blatant trade fraud that is having catastrophic impact on American manufacturers, something that we talk about quite often here. And that's why I've asked my expert, my go-to guy to come share some thoughts on this. And, you know, maybe this is this is one of those things we should be highlighting that the Biden administration is doing to help protect jobs here at home. I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come talk with us. Scott is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, the website. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick. It's uh, great to be with you as always. So what do you make of this? Uh, you know, this company moved production to Thailand, evidently, so that they could bring stuff in here. They, you know, don't all don't all American companies do this? Isn't this part of the whack-a-mole game that that's been going yeah. on for years? Took the words right out of my mouth, Rick. Yeah, this this is the the traditional trade whack-a-mole game, um, and it kind of started. You know, uh, let's let's rewind uh, about a decade and a half ago. And China got into the auto parts making business in a big way uh, in the 2000s, ramped up production. And then you saw a lot of that coming into the United States uh, over the course of the, uh, the 2010s, okay? And so if you looked at a graph, exports from China to the US shooting way up. This was displacing jobs here uh, and causing disruption. The last administration put on a 25% tariff on a lot of different types of uh, Chinese products, including some auto parts. 
And uh, in some cases, that's what you call an exclusionary tariffs, like it was no longer cost effective for uh, those goods to come from China to the United States uh, with that 25% tariff. So what uh, Sunsong and other companies did was simply move the stuff they were making in China, temporarily basically putting it in another country like Thailand in this example, or Vietnam or Malaysia, or in some cases, Mexico. And, and there's a really a long list of, of countries. And these, these products, these parts are what I would call industrial tourists, okay? <laughs> they're just there for a layover. Then they're moving on into the United States. And now the tariff doesn't have to be paid. So they can come into the market, they'll make their money. Um, but they're essentially evading these, these tariffs that were put into place. And that is what the lawmakers were writing about and saying, hey, there is this whack-a-mole going on, which you, which you mentioned, Rick, and we should do something about this because these, these really aren't products that are made in Thailand. They're really made in China, and they just have a made in Thailand stamp on them to avoid the tariffs. And of course, they're undercutting their competitors in the United States and everybody who's playing by the rules. So at the end of the day, you think about this one case, you multiply it by you know hundreds of different times of there's other companies doing this, and it has a real profound economic impact yep. on communities like Moreno, Ohio, or anywhere else where they're manufacturing auto parts in this country. And the thing is, is you know, you talk to any of my mechanic friends, um, you know, basically the Chinese auto parts that come into this country are garbage right out of the box. Uh, half the time, they're they're no good when you put them in, and you got to go do it get another one to try again. And and the sad reality is, is there there doesn't seem to be, and you're the you're the expert in this. There doesn't seem yeah. to be any U.S. auto parts really being made. Uh, it used to be when I was younger, they, they were everywhere, and then all of a sudden. They just all went away, and it's this kind of mercantilist policy. It's this kind of this kind of attack on our industries that basically made all the U.S. auto part companies go away. Yeah, I think in so many different ways, other than kind of garments and textiles, which are wearables, which you would call non-durable goods, the auto part sector is probably hit harder by trade than any other. I think personally, and it started with Mexico and it crescendoed up to China and now all this other circumvention that's taken place. And, and it, it has had a real disruptive effect on the industry and the types of auto parts products that we make in the United States. There's no question about it. And it's important as we're considering like, you know, reviving a new auto industry in the United States, what, what that capability, what that capacity is. I think the other thing, Rick, that this raises is that the, our, our trade laws are completely inadequate to deal with the challenge. Like you put this tariff on, you hope the problem goes away. These companies figure out a way around it, uh, and then you're back to square one. And so there are some efforts. Uh, there's a bill called the Leveling the Playing Field Act 2.0, uh, which would make it easier to block these imports that are being circumvented coming in instead of having to wait a couple of years like you do now, right? You have to build a case, you have to raise the money for it, you have to show the economic evidence, and basically the damage has to be done 
before you can take any action. And it's too late then, right? It's it's too late. And so we need this kind of early warning system. Uh, And we need, and I like this, we need the feds to step up like Homeland Security did, raid this company and say, hey, you, you guys can't do this stuff. And so I think that that will have some deterrent effect uh, if they are, um, you know, if there's more resources that are devoted to that and it will uh, help, you know, make our auto parts companies and our workers in it way more competitive because otherwise they're just, you know, they're facing cheating every day. Yeah. But here's my problem with a lot of this stuff. When you're when you're talking about this level, it's usually some fine or some slap on the wrist or oh hey, we won't do it again. We'll post a notice. Now personally, I'm against the death penalty when we're talking about people, but I am all in favor of the death penalty for corporations. Uh, if they want to yeah. be corporate people, I say we should be able to kill them off. And this these kind of things should be should rise to that level of sorry, you just can't be trusted. You got to go away. Yeah, and there's look, there's mechanisms to do that under the law, either if they represent a security risk or if they violated sanctions or done other things like that, where basically they can be blacklisted or placed on entities of concern. Um, but you could also hike the tariffs up so high on all of these company c- countries, whether it's a uh, you know 200, 300 percent, that they just they, they can't economically send these things in the United States. So there are a couple of tools available to try to do this but you know navigating this and here's the thing right it's like you know your your average auto parts shop owner who's who's making these products uh you know somewhere in the industrial heartland you know is running a small shop probably somewhere between 50 and 200 folks and it's not like they have a trade law department I mean, you know, they're just they're trying to to get their product out the door. And so it is so difficult for these firms to try to combat this on their own, which is basically combating the government of China uh, and all these large global companies. So they do need some help uh, in cases like the this from Homeland Security or from the Department of Commerce when it comes to filing trade cases. Uh, there's a lot more that could and should be done uh, to act on behalf of American workers and businesses. And as I mentioned, there are ways in which we can strengthen this law. So instead of passing more free trade agreements, let's focus on the laws that we have. Let's make them stronger. Let's make them more uh, you know, fast acting. Uh, and, and that way they'll be far more effective instead of like, stopping the bleeding after you know the patient has been chronically ill so to speak for a couple of years that you're getting it right away yeah. and there's a better chance for that industry not only to survive but to grow in the future yeah, as how well. about we pass the i'm tired of being the global dumping ground act and we we go back to the That's idea right. of domestic production for domestic consumption and we we build thing here cuz look i'm i'm old enough to remember you know it, where i grew up in cleveland there was a brook park avenue was like a manufacturing hub you had the ford plant you had the chevy plant and you had you know hundreds of little feeder plants that made the parts that went into those cars everything was domestically locally sourced and built and the jobs that were created were good solid middle income jobs that supported families we can we can recreate that and look i think biden is is moving us in a direction to do some of that i wish they would do a lot more 
touting that message of saying, look, you know, things are things are tough and we're, we're changing course. We're moving in this direction and sell that direction, sell that hope, that future, that vision, because I think people will really get around that idea that, hey, we are going to take all those things that Trump talked about and actually do them. And I know Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen's traveling throughout the Midwest, promoting the economic record and all of this. But I think you got to lean fully into this with the whole administration going, this is a sea change. This is real. This is real hope and real change for for American working people. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right about that. And and look, let's give Secretary Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, uh, and also someone like Lael Brainerd, who's the head of the National Economic Council, Props for for uh, agreeing to industrial policy, for pivoting on trade, uh, and for overseeing programs that have lifted a bunch of people out of poverty, that have stabilized the middle class, that are growing wages, that are doing all of that stuff. They're doing a great job. In addition to that, I think we also need authentic working class folks to be out there in the communities saying, this is what these policies have done. Trump gave us one leg of what we needed. He gave us the tariffs, and even then it was really shaky and kind of not very strategic. But with Biden, we have the tariffs, we have the investment, we have the Buy America, and we have the support for unions and the working class that is helping to lift those wages up and to be out there uh, articulating this, I think, is going to be very important because you know people and, and you know look, I'm preaching to the cry here because I, I know you understand this too. It's like the news they're getting is doom and gloom uh, about the economy. Although whether you look at the stock market or you look at your paycheck or everything or you look at prices, you know gas prices are coming down, paychecks are going up, stock market is up. All the indicators are are pretty good. But there's not that reinforcement in the community to get across how policy has driven some of that. And then there are also short memories of how bad things were just a few just a few years ago. And and to ask that fundamental question, are you better off now or were you better off four years ago? And it's going to be a pretty universal to answer the answer to that if you phrase it like that. But you need in addition to the Secretary Yellens or the Lael Brainerds, you need some folks who can connect uh, authentically with working class people who have kind of walked the walk before yeah. uh, and, and are able to be in those communities and doing this every day, every day until people finally say, you know what, I finally got the message. I understand because the, not enough Americans uh, are, are, are aware of this type of transformation transformation that's underway. And, and that's a problem with our corporate controlled mainstream media. And, and look, they're easy to beat up on. But the reality is, is they want a horse race. Uh, the doom and gloom sells, you know, the old if it bleeds, it leads mentality. And this is where if I'm Biden, every time someone sticks a microphone in my face and asks a dumb question, I'm I'm asking like Trump would do. Why aren't you reporting on all of the great things that our administration is doing on the jobs that are being created here, here and here? Why aren't you talking about that why is it the doom yeah. and gloom why is it stuff that 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 feeds into this narrative that things are bad when when really the numbers are are, are pointing us in the right direction 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And there's so many examples. It's like that that bridge that collapsed outside of Pittsburgh. And then with infrastructure and the local and the feds and the state working together, got it rebuilt in record time, you know, as, as one example. Or the fact that just a couple of years ago, we had semiconductor chip shortages and you couldn't get an Xbox or an automobile or an appliance or anything like that because virtually all those semiconductors were manufacturing overseas. Now we have like seven or eight semiconductor factories being built uh, in the United States. And, and so, and that goes on and on and on. And so I do think that there is a, a really important story to tell. And ultimately, and I, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because there's always gonna be the flash in the pan issues that come up, right? And, and, and you, gotta, you gotta address those in some way. But at the end of the day, and tell me if I'm wrong here, you know, most if not all elections really turn on economic issues, right? And, and, and how you're feeling about your own personal economic situation uh, and, and how you're feeling about the direction of the country. And, and, and there, again, I think there's a, a really good story for this president uh, and the administration to tell if they choose to do so. I'm right there with you. But for me, it's also that, that positive, that hope and change narrative that Obama uh, used so, so masterfully in 2008. I think we're at one of those moments. I think what he is doing, is, you know, what, what we've been talking about for you know, almost two decades now, uh, this this idea that we're we're changing from what we've done in the past. We're changing from what got us into the mess, especially for working people. I know our billionaires are are fat and happy. They're doing really well. Uh, laid out the numbers yesterday of just how well they're doing. When you got five yeah. people on the on the planet who have seen their their wealth go up by almost a trillion dollars over the last year, there's there's a problem with distribution. Uh, so for me, this idea that we're changing we're changing course. And returning yeah. to a and you know the ideals of a prosperous time that's exciting to me and I think we need to sell that in a in a much better way J just my view and I know they're I know they're going to try but I, I think we need to do a better job yeah and, and just how important that is overall and you can translate this into values I think is like you know America is built on a solid foundation of having a stable engaged middle class that means strong communities you know in in so many different states yep. uh, it means strong civic in institutions and the foundation of that are good jobs with good wages right it's, it's the underpinning of all of that yep. and so there is a way i think to bring that back around uh but every day rick it's got to be every day every day well every word Message discipline. Democrats have always needed to learn that. But, but Scott, as always, I appreciate the time. Great stuff. Look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks so much for having me on, Rick. Appreciate it. Our good friend, Scott Paul. I want to hear your thoughts. You agree with me? We should be building more stuff here at home. Uh, well, where's my key phrase? Domestic production for domestic consumption. I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick, at thericksmithshow.com. Right back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1787. That was the day known as Shays' Rebellion. The United States was a new nation, and the Constitution had not yet been written. The Revolutionary Army had won the war with Britain, but the young nation was mired in debt. During the aftermath of the war, more farmers moved into western Massachusetts. Many of them incurred high levels of debt in setting up their farms. Due to economic hard times, the farmers found it difficult to repay their debts. Local sheriffs began to seize farms and even jailed some farmers. Anger amongst the farmers began to rise. They held meetings to discuss how to respond. Many saw the government's actions as an echo of the very type of tyranny they had stood up against during the Revolutionary War. They petitioned Boston for economic relief, but their requests fell on deaf ears. The farmers began to protest the courts, disrupting the proceedings. For six months, the farmers waged organized resistance. One of the men whose farm was threatened for repossession was Daniel Shays. Shays was a former captain in the Continental Army who had fought against the British. He organized a force of a thousand men. The men marched on the debtor's court in Springfield and the arsenal located there. The governor of Massachusetts called out armed troops in response. These troops were funded by wealthy merchants from the eastern part of the state. And so on this day, four of Shea's men were killed as the troops attempted to forcibly remove the rebels. By February, the rebellion had been crushed. The rebellion influenced the writing of the U.S. Constitution, as some drafters were convinced that a strong central government was needed to quell further uprisings by the working class. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. back to the rick smith show check out our website the ricksmithshow.com questions comments something on your mind email me rick at the ricksmithshow.com so you know talking with scott paul uh my mind started going to auto parts and like like i said to scott you know the reality is i've got a lot of friends who are mechanics and and work on cars and you know one of the one of the things that they they always tell me is uh you know the parts aren't the same you know, they'll, they'll swap out parts and then you get this cheap crap from China uh, that, that, you know, out of the box is garbage. And, you know, it's cheaper. We got it cheaper. Uh, and, and cheaper is, is pretty much garbage. And, you know, I remember having conversations with, you know, a, a number of these people were like, you know, when you had parts made in the U.S., these were, you, you could stand by them. Uh, they cost a little bit more, but, you know, they... They lasted. And that's the thing that as a society we've lost. You know, my wife and I talk about this all the time. I'm willing to pay more for something that's going to last. Uh, for instance, at our house, our, our, our heat pump uh, took a, you know, a turn for the worse. Uh, and we had someone come out and take a look at it and, you know, and, and replace a couple of parts and do some stuff. But, you know, I said, you know, how, you know, we might think about replacing it. And he's like, no, don't. Uh, because the stuff that we're replacing it with has a life expectancy of eight to 10 years. Uh, yours is you know 20 years old, probably got another 10 years in it because it was made differently. Um, you know, you've got this planned obsolescence of, of just about everything. It's about, it's about churning out uh, products. It's about people buying and consuming and buying and consuming and more and more and more and more instead of you know, my grandparents, you know, my grandmother had three washing machines her entire life, you know, and, and the last one, you know, last, I think still running. Uh, and she's been, she's passed what seven years ago. 
we used to build stuff to last. We used to build stuff out of out of real material, uh, not cheap plastic garbage that is, you know, by the time you get it out of the box, it's broken. And, you know, the auto parts thing is is kind of a big deal in that I remember as a kid, you know, you had, you know, the, the you know, the, the Ford and the Chevy plant there on Brook Park Avenue, and then all of the, the parts and all of the feeder uh, plants that went into that. You made the parts locally. They shipped them across the street, not across the globe. And you go back to, you know, when Delphi went under. Uh, Delphi was a major auto parts supplier, a former subsidiary of GM, and they filed bankruptcy in 2005. And why? Well, because they were getting crushed from China. You know, we just five years of giving them PNT, Permanent Normal Trade Relations, um, created this situation where, you know, mergers and, you know, debt and all kinds of stuff went and just crushed them. And there were, there were thousands of jobs lost, good union jobs, family-sustaining jobs. A Visteon Corporation, a former subsidiary of a Ford Motor Company, they filed bankruptcy in 2009 again. Why? China, cheap junk being dumped in here. And, and we as consumers, you know, we, we've got choice. And I remember being told this a lot. You know, you've got choice. You can, you can pay a little bit more for the American-made product, but wouldn't you? The cheaper product is it's the same. And you go, no, the cheaper one is cheaper for a reason because it's garbage. And go down the list of, of products that we used to make here that now we make in, in, you know, in places like China with the cheapest, most exploitable labor, with the most lax environmental regulations, with, you know, because, hey, we got to kill those regulations off and massive profits for our shareholders and our, our corporations. But for the workers, major screw job. For consumers, even bigger of a screw job. Because what you're getting is garbage. And basically the entire auto parts industry. Uh, you can't find many parts made in the U.S. And the thing that I like about Biden is he's saying, look, okay, we're going to be moving to these EVs, electric vehicles. They're going to be the future. We need to source them here. We need to build them here. We need to manufacture. We need to do all that stuff here. We need to create that infrastructure from the ground up so that the future, the future of these, these vehicles is here in the U.S. And we're going to protect those, those industries that we did not do because of the horrible neoliberal trade policies, because of the free traders. And, you know, we, we need to, you know, we need to open up the world because countries that trade, they don't, they don't fight each other. Well, we're finding out that's not necessarily true. And basically everything we were sold, all of it, was garbage. It was to make the rich richer and the working class poorer. And congratulations, it succeeded. Congratulations, uh, they did it. They made working people poorer. Now you're looking at at this administration saying, look, we need to we need to shore up our supply lines. We need to have a supply chain that's that's much more resilient, that's domestic. Which is why, you know, I've been saying for years, this is not new. People who have been listening to the show for a while know 
I have always been a proponent of domestic production for domestic consumption. Build it here with American workers, with American products, and build good stuff. I'm willing to pay more for stuff that's going to last. And I think every American is. This idea that, oh, I can get $50 worth of cheap garbage at the, at the Wally World, uh, and, and somehow I'm going to feel better about myself is ludicrous. Because day after tomorrow, most of that junk is broken. You want to be a good environmentalist? Stop producing so much. Use the stuff we have and, and, and make it last. That, that's old school thinking, I know. But I'll tell you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us reshore the manufacturing that we so desperately need. So good talking with Scott. You know, I got to tell you, it's, it's we, we, we sorely need uh, to reshore manufacturing. But I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you got any stories like like my, my example of growing up in my hometown of Cleveland? All those all those factories, all those feeder plants, they're all gone, all empty. It's a shame. Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Miss any portion of the program? Grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll find ours. Thanks for being here. See you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.